The following is a message by Dr. Julius Kim of Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at westcal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. We continue our series through the book of Mark. Looking at the life of Jesus, we find ourselves this morning in chapter 10, starting with verse 46. So if you have your Bibles with you, I'd like to invite you to turn to Mark chapter 10, verses 46 to 52. Mark 10, 46 to 52. This is the word of God. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, that is the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called to the blind man, Cheer up! On your feet! He's calling you! Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Let's pray. Father, how grateful we are to you for this morning that you've given to us to once again reflect upon your goodness and grace to us in Jesus, who not only heals this blind man, but heals the blindness in all of us. So teach us, Lord, through this word, how to trust evermore in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The disciple Thomas has really gotten a bad rap over the years, hasn't he? And it's been almost 2,000 years, and every time you mention the name Thomas, the one word associated with him is what? Doubting Thomas. Uh, Too bad his name's not Barnabas or something like that. Every time you think of the word Barnabas in the scriptures, it's son of encouragement. But poor Thomas, doubting Thomas, wherever he shall be known, though even after the resurrection, Church history and church tradition has it that he went to far-off lands to really spread the gospel of good news. And yet, in spite of all of that, he forever will be known as Doubting Thomas. Might as well be Doubting Julius, actually. Am I any different? Are you any different? Thomas, though he had walked with Jesus for three years, slept with Jesus, been taught by Jesus learning what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And when it counted the most, he had to put his fingers in the holes in his hands and put his hand in Jesus' side. And only then would he believe. But in reality, am I any different? I, who call myself a disciple of Jesus, walking with Jesus for many years, a covenant child, raised in the church, and with difficult times come into my life, (laughs) 
I might as well be doubting Julius. Yesterday in my preaching class, a student preacher poignantly told of how often we doubt when we're confronted by problems perhaps even outside of our control, wars and rumors of wars, or problems even in our own hearts, like when we grasp in our minds and hearts why bad things happen to good people. And if we're honest with ourselves, many of us fall prey to the power of doubting God's control over our lives, over against the joy of depending upon his sovereign and good purposes in our lives. So whether this is your last year, anxious about what the future holds, am I ready? Am I really going to be a pastor? Or it's your first year, first year here, and you're struggling with, how am I going to balance all of this reading, these crazy professors, while still trying to take care and be faithful to my family? And how am I going to pay for all of this? And if we're not careful, what does anxiety breed? Doesn't anxiety breed doubt often? And what does doubt breed? Doubt breeds despair, sometimes anger, sometimes rebellion, and outright rejection. And yet in the midst of these difficult and trying times in our lives, the gospel once again breaks through, through simple yet profound stories like this. Stories that we read time and time again, and we say to ourselves, oh, another miracle story of Jesus. And yet, if we just take some time and read and listen to the Spirit teaching us through simple stories like this, we begin to see that this story is not about Bartimaeus, but about me, about you, who are blinded by pride, blinded by doubt, blinded by sin, and need to be rescued by Jesus once again. And so we come to this story during the life of Jesus that shows us the extraordinary power of faith that comes through ordinary people like a blind beggar. And typical of narratives, the narrative moves really through three simple plot lines. It starts with a kind of state of equilibrium, a state of peace where there's no problem, and then there's a rise of a conflict. A problem surfaces, and then there's a solution to the problem, a resolution to that problem. And that's the outline we'll follow for this morning devotion in the next seven minutes. <laughs> so, state of peace, no problem. Surfacing of a problem, then solution to the problem. Sounds simple enough? I hope so. Well, let's, let's look at this uh, narrative a little bit more closely. So state of peace. It seems simple enough when you look at it, doesn't it? As we see prior to this passage, there's a lot of other stories. Jesus and his disciples have been traveling and minist- ministering along their way toward Jerusalem. In each story, be it the one about Peter's confession, what we find in chapter 8, or the story of Jesus teaching his disciples about who's the greatest in chapter 9, each story begins carefully with a state of peace, where there's no problems. In the story of Peter's confession, chapter 8, Jesus and his disciples travel to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. In the story about Jesus revealing the last shall be first, they come to the house in Capernaum. And now we come to this passage at the end of chapter 10 where we see Jesus going through Jericho, verse 46, and then actually leaving the city with his disciples, followed by a large crowd. And it's on this road they come upon a blind beggar sitting on the roadside. Again, seems pretty harmless. 
And yet, as careful readers of the gospel, we know that there's more here, isn't there? Yes, this narrative begins with a state of peace and there's no problem, but a conflict will soon arise. But at the same time, we need to see this story in light of the larger story that Mark is weaving for us about Jesus and what he's come to do. Here, this miracle story thrown in by Mark prior to the triumphal entry. Is this something he just had to fill in his gospel line with? Did, wasn't there another story about a blind man in Bethsaida in chapter 8? Why yet another one? Well, I think, interestingly, Mark had a purpose. Surprise, surprise in all of this. As careful readers of the gospel, you, you're well aware that each story has a specific purpose to them in the larger narrative and context. In Mark, as well as in Matthew, Luke, and John, each gospel account of the life of Jesus seems to have this kind of turning point where the story is no longer about who Jesus is. Who is the Son of David? Who is the Son of God? But then there's a shift, and it becomes, what did he come to do? And in the gospel of Mark, we know that shift comes during Peter's confession. Up to that point, Mark has been very careful in selecting narratives to teach us who is this Jesus. And then right after the confession, all the narratives shift in focus to teach us why he came. What was his messianic mission? And here we find within that section the story of this blind beggar. So why is Mark including this story? In fact, the second story of a blind man. As you know, earlier in chapter 8, if you turn there, there's this other story about a blind man. And again, I don't think it's by accident it's there. Earlier in chapter 8, Jesus challenges his disciples in, in verse 17 in chapter 8. Interestingly, right before the story about this healing of the blind man, he challenges disciples who are arguing about having no bread. He says, do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts ardent, hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? Do you still not understand? Right after this incident of Jesus challenging his disciples who can't see is this narrative about healing a blind man. And then here's our passage in chapter 10 describing the healing of a blind man. Sandwiched between these two healings of blind people are no less than three times Jesus takes his disciples aside to reveal his impending suffering, death, and resurrection. The first time he does this in all of the narratives. Again, amplifying this point that Mark is trying to make, that something else is now going on in my, in my gospel narrative. Mark is making ironically clear through this narrative structure that it is these blind men, the one in Bethsaida and the one outside of Jericho, are the ones that are actually able to see by faith why Jesus came and not the disciples. And through that, he's challenging us. And so though this narrative begins with a state of peace set within the larger context, there's something else going on. The problem surfaces. Upon hearing the commotion, starting in verse 47... Bartimaeus discovers that it's Jesus of Nazareth walking by. So he seizes the moment. 
And in his desperation, he calls out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So now tension is introduced to this narrative. There is this conflict that arises. But he is told harshly, isn't he, to quiet down in verse 48. Interestingly, the original has this connotation, not just of, shh, could you just be quiet? Jesus is a little busy here. You can imagine the disciples. You know, sorry. It's not that at all. In fact, it's, it's, it, there's this, almost this, this connotation of physical threat if he doesn't obey. You cannot, again, you can imagine the disciples here, almost like secret servicemen, carrying this you know, VIP from one city to another. Elvis has left the building, you know? And all along comes this, you know, this blind beggar approaching Jesus. No, they're not going to have that. Shh, quiet. Jesus is busy. He doesn't have time for people like you. Now, the rich young ruler, maybe. He can give a lot of money to our church. But for you, no. And yet, he's undeterred by the verbal and physical repercussions of this seemingly inappropriate, embarrassing cry. And so he cries out, verse 48, All the more, Son of David, have mercy upon me. Why is this so significant? Several reasons. First of all, you have to ask yourself, who is this guy? And what does he say that's so significant? Who is he? Simply put, he's a blind beggar. Think about this. He's the lowest of the lows. Every day, people, animals walk by him and pay no attention to him. Just trying to survive on the outskirts of town, hoping and praying that people walking by would have mercy upon him. He's a social outcast, needing the generosity of others who just may be willing to drop some coins or some spare food in this outstretched cloak to survive. But he's also a religious outcast, isn't he? Considered cursed by God because he was blind. But what's amazing, isn't it? If you step back and look, that in God's economy, this blind beggar Bartimaeus is the true model of faith, isn't he? In fact, he sits in stark contrast to this rich young ruler that the disciples probably were comparing him to. Mentioned earlier in this chapter, both the rich young ruler and Bartimaeus come face to face with Jesus. Both wanted to be transformed by Jesus. But the results couldn't have been more different. Whereas one was admirable, respectable, and wealthy, the other was on the other end of social respectability. Whereas one had everything, possession, every possession the world could offer, the other had nothing but the ragged cloak laid out in front of him. But it is this blind beggar who had faith. And it's because of that faith, he's the one who ends up following Jesus by having his sight restored, whereas the rich man has gone away blinded by his unbelief. Bartimaeus has nothing to lose, nothing to sell, so his commitment is immediate and complete. The very fact that we even know his name stands in stark contrast to this unnamed ruler. That's who he is. What does he say? He cries out, Son of David, have mercy on me. It's remarkable if you think about it. Why? Because it's uttered not by someone on the inside, not by one of the Pharisees who knows the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, not by one of the disciples who should have known better, but a blind beggar, an outsider, someone who shouldn't have known any better. Bartimaeus uses this royal messianic title in his cry of faith, signifying that he knew 
That it was only this Jesus, this promised anointed one, the one who has come to preach good news to the poor, proclaim freedom for the prisoners, release the oppressed, and what? Recover sight for the blind. By using this messianic, royal, anointed title, he cries in faith. It's a cry of faith. That's remarkable. But it's also remarkable. Because though it's the first time it's used in Mark's gospel account, it forms part of Mark's revelation of Jesus' messianic mission. Uttered first by this solitary blind beggar on the roadside outside Jericho in chapter 10. This messianic language will soon be on everyone's lips at the triumphal entry in chapter 11. And then in chapter 12, Jesus, who up to this point has been very careful in revealing too much about his mission, will divulge in chapter 12 why he himself is the long-awaited son of David. It's no accident that Mark includes this story, the story of this cry of faith, son of David. Because finally... Mark's narrative is coming to a climax through this simple cry. He says this because he had faith that only Jesus could heal him, that Jesus alone had the power to heal him. And so we're forced to ask ourselves at times like this, through this narrative, do we have this kind of faith? And if we're honest with ourselves, we don't, do we? And we're worse than this blind man often. And though we have eyes to see, how often do we find ourselves blinded by the cares and worries of this world rather than trusting in the promises of God? How often do we let our doubts and despair blind us to the realities of what Christ has done for us? And so after a brief moment of peace, a problem has surfaced. Blind Bartimaeus needs healing. So how did Jesus respond? Quickly, the solution to the problem, a resolution to this conflict in the narrative. Upon hearing the cry, Jesus stops. Think about that, guys. He stops. In the midst of his own death march in Jerusalem, in the midst of recognizing what he came to do to suffer and die for his people, as Jesus looks up and sees Jerusalem out of him, where he will be tortured and crucified, he stops for a blind beggar. But he doesn't just stop, does he? He heals and he transforms. In verses 49 to 52, we read several important truths here. Jesus invites Bartimaeus to come to him. Bartimaeus throws everything aside and draws near to Jesus. Jesus, though he knows all, urges him to make his request, inviting him to call upon him. Bartimaeus calling him rabbi or mentor, asked to be able to see a simple cry of faith, and then Jesus transforms his life because of that simple act of faith. Bartimaeus sees, but he also begins to follow Jesus, walking with Jesus as a newly converted disciple. Are we surprised? Are we amazed? You better be. You better be. Because there's more than just a display of healing to a wretched man in need of healing. What's happening here is much more profound and much more grand. You see the long-awaited promises of God coming in the flesh to bring those in bondage to freedom, those who have been blinded by sin to be able to see, has now is now 
becoming fulfilled. Remember the promises in 2 Samuel 22. David praises God that he will turn darkness into light. In Isaiah 9, Isaiah prophesies for those walking in darkness, they will soon see a great light, for a light has dawned. In Isaiah 49, Isaiah foretells of the day that the light will bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Who will this be? Who is this light? This light is this blind man's restorer. Because in this blind man's physical healer was the life. And that life was the light of men, John says. God himself has come in the person of Jesus who proclaims now, I am the light of the world. He who believes in me will never die. And so friends, this narrative is more than just a miracle story of Jesus displaying his mercy to a wretched man. It is a story of how Jesus came for you and I who have been blinded by our doubts, who find ourselves blinded by our despair, blinded by our pride, blinded by our sin. This Jesus came for you and I in the verse right before, not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. You see, friends, giving sight to this blind man points forward to the day when Jesus, upon entering Jerusalem as a triumphant king, will soon be executed on a Roman cross as a common criminal so that Bartimaeus and all who put their faith in him will never be blind again. Remember, when Jesus hung on the cross from the sixth hour to the ninth, darkness fell upon all the land. And soon Jesus would cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he breathed his last. You see, on the cross, Jesus undergoes the curse of blindness, being cast away from his heavenly Father, where the utter darkness of sin and sin's judgment is placed upon him, so that we, who in our doubt and despair find ourselves spiritually blind, might have hope to trust in him when all else seems dark. Friends, do you remember what Jesus said to the doubting disciple, to Thomas, who struggled with unbelief? Remember what he said? He said, blessed are they who have not seen and yet believe. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for this wonderful message of hope in the midst of despair, for a wonderful message of encouragement in the midst of discouragement. And Father, along with the Apostle Paul, we pray that you would help us not to lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly, Lord, we are being renewed day by day, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And so, Lord, help us to fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And so thank you, Father, for taking us out of darkness into light, out of death to life, so that we might proclaim your excellencies, even in the midst of doubt and despair. Thank you. For the hope that we have in Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.